All right, open your Bibles, if you would, with me, please, to the book of Galatians, excuse me, Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians, chapter 2. I know I did not announce this, so those of you that are online may be kind of taken back by, by the message today, but this is message number five in my prophecy series. And I chose to bring this message today as I believe it is very opportune in light of the prophecy series on the whole. And as I go through this message, I think you'll understand a little more clearly why I'm saying that. But this is prophecy message number five. The title of the message is Jesus-Based Prophecy versus Israel-Based Prophecy. That is really the crutch of the whole issue regarding Bible prophecy. I'm reading from Galatians the second chapter, verses one through five. Then 14 years after, he's referring to the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Then 14 years after, the Jerusalem Council, I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. He had a, meaning he had a private meeting with the leaders, the apostles of the, the early church to rehearse with them all the things that had taken place in the interim since that conference in Acts chapter 15 during that 14 year period. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Could I have just one more, Jason? And that because of false brethren. You might want to underline that. And that because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privily or privately or surreptitiously to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage, unto, un, unto mosaic bondage, the bondage of the old covenant law. False brethren who surreptitiously came in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into mosaic bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for one hour that the truth of the gospel 
might continue with you. We paid them no heed. We gave them no attention. And we listened to them, no, not for one hour. Now, I want to give you a couple of commentaries before I get into my comments. Matthew Henry writes this regarding the phrase, spy out our liberty. There, that would be the Judaizers that Paul calls false brethren in our text. There, Judaizers, false brethren, their design herein was to bring them into bondage, which they would have effected could they have gained the point they aimed at. For had they prevailed with Paul and the other apostles to have circumcised Titus, they would easily have imposed circumcision upon other Gentiles and so have brought them under the bondage of the law of Moses. You see, the goal of the Judaizers then and now is to bring Christians under the bondage of the law of Moses. Judaizers, listen to this. I hope somehow you can remember this sentence I'm about to make. It's so important. Judaizers are the arch enemies of freedom. Whether that freedom is civil or spiritual, whether you're talking about the liberty of a country or you're talking about the liberty of the church in Christ, either way, Judaizers are the arch enemies of freedom. If you will take the time to observe governmental affairs closely enough, you will see that time after time after time, it is the Judaizers who are the most rabid about stealing our liberties. Judaizers outside the church in governmental affairs are the biggest proponents of slavery and bondage, anti-constitutionalism, anti-bill of rights, all these things which go to make the liberty that America has enjoyed for most of its existence is being attacked repeatedly by the same people. And I'm not talking about Democrats or Republicans. I'm talking about Judaizers in both parties. And it's the same ones on the spiritual end of the spectrum within the church that are trying to take away the Christian liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. I'll say it again, Judaizers 
are the arch enemies of freedom, whether that freedom is civil or spiritual. Again, Matthew Henry makes the note on what the Apostle Paul said, false brethren trying to bring them into bondage of the Mosaic law. Albert Barnes has a very good commentary on this phrase. And that because of false brethren. That's what Paul wrote. And that because of false brethren. Barnes writes, Who these false brethren were is not certainly known. It is probable that he refers to Judaizing Christians or persons who claim to be Christians and to have been converted from Judaism. And then he gives two weathers in this commentary. Number one, whether they were dissemblers, that's an old English word, means pretenders, and hypocrites, or number two, whether they were, listen to this phrase, so imperfectly acquainted with Christianity, and so obstinate, opinionated, and perverse, Though really in some respects good men, it is not easy to determine. It is clear, however, that they oppose the Apostle Paul, that they might regard him, that they regarded him as teaching dangerous doctrines. So Albert Barnes says, these were Judaizing Christians. And he says, now, it's either one of two things. Either these men were, number one, pretenders and hypocrites and were not truly saved people in, in, from the beginning. Or, number two, they were, in some respects, good men, meaning saved men, but they were imperfectly acquainted with Christianity. I love that phrase. Christians who believe in Christian Zionism, Schofield Futurism, Israel-based prophecy, are imperfectly acquainted with Christianity. They really don't understand true Christianity at all. That's what he's saying. And then he said, and some of them are obstinate, opinionated, and perverse, though they might be saved. I've known a ton of Baptists that fit that description. I'm serious. I was a Baptist for over three decades, so I think I have a right to talk about them. Some of the meanest, most cantankerous, honoriest, is that a word? Honoriest preachers I've ever met are Baptists. And that's what Albert Barnes was alluding to. Now notice that adherence to any form of Judaism. And as you know, Judaism 
is not the religion of Old Testament Israel under Moses. That is not Judaism. We've talked about this before. Judaism in the modern world is the religion of the Pharisees under the Talmud. And if you don't understand that statement, it's because you haven't read Michael Hoffman's excellent treatise, Judaism, Strange Gods. You read this and you will understand perfectly what I'm saying. Adherence to any form of Judaism, which is Talmudism, is to be imperfectly acquainted with Christianity. So anytime you hear or see a preacher or a Christian who gravitates to or is infatuated with any form of Judaistic teaching is not perfectly acquainted with Christianity. In other words, they don't understand the true nature of Christianity at all, though they claim to be Christian. Please let that sink into your mind and heart. I'm going to make this statement as well. I am convinced that the vast majority, vast majority of errant teaching within evangelicalism, I'm not talking about liberalism, I'm talking about evangelicalism, the vast majority of errant teaching within evangelicalism stems from unbiblical favor toward and infatuation with Zionist Israel. That is the heart of the vast majority of false teaching in evangelicalism. When you get Israel wrong, you get the rest of the New Covenant wrong. You cannot understand the New Testament or the New Covenant as long as you adhere to Old Covenant teaching. They do not reconcile. They cannot mix. Notice also the infatuation with Judaism by Christians imperfectly acquainted with Christianity can make even good men to be opinionated, obstinate, and perverse. Why do some preachers feel like they have to fight every, everyone else? If you don't line up exactly 100% with them, they write you off as an enemy and they attack you and try to ruin you. Where does that spirit of war come from? It comes from the enemy. The enemy breeds, foments war, division, conflict. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The gospel is the gospel of peace. So how can men who claim to be an ambassador of the Prince of Peace be so warlike in their spirit and in their heart? Many of them are 
Zionist in their soul. And that's what gives them that warlike spirit. I'm going to quote at this point from prophecy message number one, which is right here, an overview of, primary, of the primary eschatological interpretations. That was our very first prophecy message. I went into depth to show you the differences of interpretation from the various schools of thought and it, it, what they believed and so forth to give you a foundation for the rest of our series so you understand. If you haven't watched prophecy message number one, you were not prepared for the rest of the prophecy messages. And that's always the problem. We have people watching, because we're gaining new viewers all the time, that have never watched our Israel packages, six years of study and teaching to prepare for these messages on prophecy. 31 messages, three DVDs, excuse me, three sets of DVDs, six years of study and teaching to lay the foundation. And then we've, we've given now four prophecy messages and you're coming in on number five if you're watching for the first time today. So people that have not watched the Israel packages, who have not watched that first message on prophecy, and they hear, for example, the message I preached last Sunday about Antichrist, and they don't truly understand. And it's because they've heard nothing but Christian Zionism all of their lives. They've heard nothing but Schofield Futurism all of their lives. That's all they know. That's all they've heard. And so when someone comes along and gives them something different out of the scriptures they haven't heard, they get all confused. It's not confusing if you will take the time to study along with us all the material that we have rehearsed with you over the last six or seven years. It will not be confusing. In fact, it will never be clearer than it is right now. Let me quote a little bit from that first prophecy message and make comments. I think at this juncture it's time to go back and do this. I said in prophecy message number one, I am convinced that proper biblical eschatology must be in harmony with the truth contained in the Israel packages regarding biblical Israel. I am convinced that proper biblical eschatology, prophecy doctrines, must be in harmony with the truth contained in the Israel packages. Set one, set two, set three. And true biblical eschatology is in harmony with the biblical truth of Israel, as we shall see in our upcoming messages. Again, this is number one prophecy message. I then said, our interpretations, speaking to preachers and Bible teachers across the country, 
our interpretations of eschatology will, and I have that in capital letters, will differ. I doubt that any of us will be 100% accurate. A lot of these preachers who think they have got everything nailed down to a T, they know it all with no mistakes. They are in for a rude awakening when they get to heaven. They're going to find out that none of us in mortal flesh are going to be 100% accurate about just about anything, including this subject. I doubt that any of us will be 100% correct. But is my conviction that any proper interpretation of eschatology, listen to me, must not be Israel-based. And then I said, the more Israel-based it is, the less accurate it will be. And the less Israel-based it is, the more accurate it will be. Let me parenthesis. My conclusions regarding Bible prophecy are predicated upon the above conviction God revealed the truths of the Israel packages to me first in order to help me form what I believe is the proper interpretation of eschatology. Most people and I was this way until 2007. For over 30 years, I was this way. I believed and taught the eschatology that I was taught predicated and built upon nothing except the interpretation of eschatology. That's why I've told you so many months ago, eschatology does not stand on its own. It does not drift around in space all by itself without foundation. Bible eschatology is built upon the foundation of biblical truth relative to Israel. And if you do not understand the biblical truth relative to Israel first, you will never, ever understand eschatology. And that was my problem. And that's the problem of the Christian Zionist nationwide. I was taught, okay, here's, now this is a class on eschatology. And so they start talking about prophecy. Where is the foundation? There is none. It's just, here's prophecy. So when God started dealing with my heart about the error of the prophecy doctrines I was teaching, 
I had to do a lot of personal soul searching and then hard laborious work to try and figure out what the error was and upon what was the error based. I'm telling you, I've said this many times, it's a lot harder to unlearn something than to learn something. It took me years of prayerful, soul-searching, humility, crying out to God, studying of Scripture and nothing but the Scripture, to unlearn before I could start learning. And the first thing I had to unlearn was that eschatology or prophecy is not, or I should say unlearn the, the statement that eschatology is interpreted by itself. No, it's built on biblical truth that has to be understood before you can unwrap prophecy. Most people, it seems like as soon as they get saved, there's a class in Sunday school somewhere for prophecy. And I mean, they don't know John 3.16 hardly. They don't know the book of John. They haven't studied the book of Romans. Those are the two first books of the, of the Bible that anyone who just gets saved should learn. Before you learn anything else, you need to study, saturate your heart and mind with the book of John and the book of Romans. Until you know those two books, you're not even ready for the rest of the Bible. But they don't read John. They don't read Romans. They don't read Galatians. They don't read anything. They jump right into Revelation. What is it? about prophecy that captures the attention of so many people. It's because prophecy as taught today is taught without biblical foundation, which gives all kinds of sensationalism meaning within the definition. And that's why today when you turn on Christian radio or television, you're going to hear evangelists saying some of the most far-fetched, outlandish interpretations about what's going on right now in Russia, Ukraine, in the various parts of the world. And they're going to the Bible, and they're quoting the scripture, and it's, this is Russia, this is Ukraine. But a few years ago, those same verses were applying to Germany. They were applying to Japan. They were applying it to other countries of the world with whom there was conflict. Whatever the conflict is, whoever the guilty party is, all of a sudden they are the fulfillment of that particular political, I mean, scriptural prophecy, even though 10 years ago that same prophecy applied to someone else. And nobody ever seems to be aware enough to say, hey, wait a minute. Didn't we talk about these verses 10 years ago about this other situation over here? Now you're saying it applies to this. Which is it? It's whatever the prophecy teacher wants it to be in order to make money. That's what it means.
sell tapes, sell DVDs, and so they change it all the time to keep selling products. My conclusions on Bible prophecy were the result of something. God did not lead me directly into the study of prophecy. When he convicted my heart about the error, most people think, wow, I need to study Revelation again. No. God taught me the truths of biblical Israel from both the Old and the New Testaments. And that took years of study. Once I understood clearly and firmly the biblical truth regarding Israel, now I had the foundation that I was able to get into the prophecy element of this truth because the foundation was laid. So I know that whatever prophecy means, it cannot conflict with the truths of God's word relative to Israel. I, I have, and you have, a, a barometer. You have a plumb line that doesn't change. That plumb line sets the level standard of truth. That plumb line is the truth of God regarding Israel. So when you start getting into prophecy, when you come up with ideas that conflict with that plumb line about Israel, you know that your study of prophecy is in error. That's how you know. So when you know that your prophecy interpretation comports with the plumb line, you know it's got to be pretty accurate. So that is the process of how God led me into this study. So that's why I've said, for how many years have I said, if you don't watch the Israel packages, I said, when we get into our prophecy series, you will be lost. And some people are lost already with four prophecy messages. We got a long way to go. It's because they haven't watched the Israel packages. They don't have a plumb line. They don't know how to balance the teachings of eschatology. Now because of what God taught me in the Israel packages, I am convinced that there is absolutely, hear me, absolutely no future for national Israel, prophetically. No future whatsoever for national Israel. As I've said in these prophecy messages, all of the promises to the nation of Israel have been fulfilled. Every promise God made to the nation of Israel has been fulfilled, all of them. Therefore, scriptures that are interpreted 
to teach that God still has a future plan for the nation of Israel are misinterpreted and mistaught. And people who say that there is a prophetic future for national Israel are teaching error. Now back to my first prophecy message excerpt. At this point, I said, I'll just say that of all the various streams of eschatology, dispensational premillennialism is the least biblical and the most diabolical. And I, of all the streams of eschatology, dispensational premillennialism is the least biblical and the most diabolical. And I gave uh, 10 brief summary reasons. Number one, it diminishes the completed work of Christ on the cross by extending old covenant worship into the New Testament church. Number two, it blasphemes the work of Christ on the cross with an anticipation of Old Testament blood sacrifice in an Old Testament temple. Number three, it elevates the Old Covenant over the New Covenant by using the Old Testament to explain the New Testament. I've told you over and over, the New Testament explains the Old Testament, not vice versa. Number four, it elevates Israel over the church. Number five, it blinds people to true biblical history. Number six, it blinds people to antichrists, plural, at work in the world today. You don't hear dispensational futurists talking about the antichrist that are in the world today. They're so fixated on the antichrist coming when they're not even going to be here that they totally overlook the antichrist that are here right now. Which at this point you should watch if you haven't already. Last Sunday's message, the fourth prophecy message, Antichrist, Antichrists, the man of sin, and the falling away. Number seven, it gives professing Jews false hope. I believe that dispensational futurism has done more to damn the souls of professing Jewish people of any doctrine in the world. They have told professing Jews that they are God's chosen people. By the way, my third message, God's chosen people, the children of promise, the Israel of God, and Romans chapter 11 explains all of this. But they have told professing Jews, you're God's chosen people. Many evangelicals even teach that Jews have a separate means of salvation. 
that they don't have to come to faith in Christ, that they're going to be saved simply because that they are Jewish. Not all the evangelicals believe that, but many do. But even the ones that don't have lied to the professing Jew by telling him, you are God's chosen people, giving them a false assurance. If I'm God's chosen people, then I don't have to worry about going to hell. I don't have to worry about not having salvation. I'm God's chosen people, so I'm going to go to heaven because I'm God's chosen people. What we should be preaching and teaching to professing Jews, and we are being seen in Palestine and Israel every week, and we have seen several Israelis come to know Christ as Savior as well as Palestinians. What we should be preaching is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is none other name under heaven save Jesus, whereby anyone must be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. We all must come to God through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the message evangelicals should be preaching, and they're not. They're making an exception for professing Jews, giving false hope. Number eight, it gives professing Christians false hope. The rapture. The rapture as defined by evangelicals is the catching away of the saints to heaven before the great quote-unquote tribulation takes place which eventually leads to Armageddon and the coming of Christ. My second prophecy message deals with this. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, where are the rapture and the seven-year tribulation? The doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture has blinded the hearts and the minds of Christian people to a host of things including their responsibility under God now, which is number nine, it dulls the spiritual senses of Christian responsibility. And number 10, it replaces Jesus-based prophecy with Israel-based prophecy. And then I said, so in truth, dispensational futurists are the ones who believe in replacement theology. Now, I said this next. I can appreciate and respect the various interpretations of eschatology that are not excessively Israel-based. Historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. I respect each of those interpretations. We should realize, quoting again 
the first message. We should realize that we all share basic adherence to Jesus-based prophecy and be loving and gracious to each other within the spiritual belief system. Amillennial, I mean, I mean, yeah, okay, amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism are all, for the most part, Jesus-based. It is tragic, I said, that some Christians are so mean-spirited toward other Jesus-based prophecy adherents that may not be in total agreement with their positions. Some preachers just love to fight with other preachers. Maybe it's insecurity. Maybe it's a desire for preeminence. Maybe it's simply an argumentative, contentious spirit. Or as Barnes said, obstinate and opinionated, though really in some respects, good men. For example, if I say the Roman papacy is an antichrist and a historic premillennialist says the Roman papacy is the antichrist, an antichrist, the antichrist. Is it really worth fighting over? Think about it. Think about it. Antichrist is antichrist whether it is in the singular or the plural. You really want to fight about that? Now, Schofield futurists are divided between good men who are ignorant of truth and imperfect understanding of Christianity, but have good hearts, and those men who are truly false brethren and who are part of Satan's plan to bring the church into Judaic bondage. And it's often difficult to understand who is in which category. Is this just a deceived sincere believer or is this a devilish plant within the church to deceive the people it's hard for us to be able to distinguish because we see the outside and the liars the phonies and the hypocrites can be just as spiritual acting and sounding as people that are truly believers I can tell you that the Judaizers are starting to come out of the woodwork against what I'm teaching. Just as they did against the Apostle Paul as referenced in the book of Galatians that we read at the beginning of this address. And that opposition will intensify as we proceed into this study. There's no doubt about it. Whenever the spotlight of truth begins to shine on the bondage of Judaism and Judaic teaching, 
the proponents of liberty that are preaching that truth are going to be attacked by the Judaizers. I don't care if it's 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem or today in America. The Judaizers are the arch enemies of freedom, whether that freedom is evil, uh, civil, excuse me, or spiritual. But I want to emphasize, hear me well. I have no quarrel, and I will not quarrel, I will not argue with Jesus-based prophecy interpretations, which include historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism. For the most part, these eschatological interpretations are Jesus-based. As far as I'm concerned, the nuances between preterism and futurism within these camps are not worth arguing about. Every eschatological interpretation divides revelation between preteristic and futuristic. Every single one, even, even dispensationalists do. They do it the least than the others, but they, they do it as well. Every eschatological interpretation divides revelation between preteristic and futuristic. It's only a matter of degree. The main thing, and the thing that I am laser focused on in this series and in my message and in this pulpit, the main thing I am focused on is that our interpretation is not Israel-based. That's the main thing. If it's not Israel-based, I'm not going to argue about our differences. It's not worth it. Why should we argue with one another who share a Jesus-based interpretation, which is very biblical and solid foundation, whenever the real enemy, the dispensational futurists, are out here blinding the minds of 80% of the evangelicals, those are the ones that we need to enlighten with the truth. And then I wrote in that first message said, I wrote and said, dispensational premillennialism is an egregious departure from historic biblical principles that it has blinded millions of people to the truth of Christ's work on the cross and the new covenant and that at its core, and I believe Schofield himself, was a devilish tool to deceive the Christian world. There is no mistaking the Zionist connection between C.I. Schofield and the notes, so-called, that he wrote in that Schofield Reference Bible. And at its core is a devilish deception, as I outlined a few minutes ago. This is again quoting message number one. I also realize that there are many sincere, born-again Christians who have been deceived by dispensational futurism, as was I. I love them in Christ and pray for their eyes to be opened. That's the end of my quotations from 
prophecy message number one. Now, my beloved, that I am teaching you things that are new to you is irrelevant to their veracity. Just because you haven't heard this before doesn't change the truth of what I'm telling you one bit. And remember, the things I am teaching that are new to you were new to me before I learned them. I am teaching you what I learned, which means that I was as ignorant of these truths as some of you are right now. And some of the things that I've taught over the last four prophecy messages, if I had heard them back in the, in the day, I would have been just as confused and turned off as some might be today when they hear me. Remember, I didn't have a foundation. I was just regurgitating what I had been taught, which is what most evangelicals are doing. They're just regurgitating what they hear the TV preacher say or what they hear the pastor say. They've never studied it for themselves. They do not have the biblical foundation that is needed to be able to understand. And I was the same way, and I was a preacher. I will continue this prophecy series by teaching you the things that I believe are the most consistent with the aforementioned. That, number one, proper biblical eschatology must be in harmony with the truth contained in the Israel packages regarding biblical Israel. And number two, the more Israel-based it is, the less accurate it is, and the less Israel-based it is, the more accurate it will be. As I continue through the prophecy messages, everything that I will teach you will be that which I believe is the most consistent with those two requisites. Please try to remember this as we continue through the prophecy series. And we are just getting started. Let's stand for a word of prayer.